Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Useful Idiots Monday morning, post-Monday morning show. I'm Mary Matty here with Kate Willett. Kate is filling in this week for our host, Katie Hopper. Kate, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? What a crazy show, huh? That, yeah, it's uh, that, was, that was a wild set of clips. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of wild, we're going to have a wild time here on Colin this morning. We're going we're gonna to talk it out. Uh, very excited to have everybody joining us. And let's take some calls. And Rena, you are the only person in the queue so far. So let's see what you have to say. Good morning, Aaron. Uh, good morning, Katie. Or Kate, I'm sorry. Uh, reflex there. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> I, I just wanted to, since you had a clip of our lovely governor, uh, I live in Nebraska, and you had a had a clip of the blessedly outgoing soon Governor Pete Ricketts from the state of Nebraska. I would just like to share something about him because a lot of people may not know this. Uh, he claims to be pro life, and of course that that whole clip uh, was all about the babies. You have to save the babies. You know, rape, incest doesn't matter. There's still a baby there. Baby, 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 baby. Um, this guy, uh, the, the Ricketts family is extremely rich. Uh, I'm not quite sure what they're doing in Nebraska, except they haven't had a big, have or had a big investment firm that was headquartered in Nebraska, but the Ricketts family is better known for owning stuff in Chicago, like the Chicago Cubs. And, uh, I'd never heard of Pete Ricketts before he came became governor. I'd never heard of any Ricketts before they became uh before he, he got to be governor. We do have term limits for governors, so like I say, he's on his way out the door. Uh fortunately or unfortunately, his his designated successor did win the Republican primary. Uh side side note, the guy endorsed by Trump ended up finishing second. So if anybody ever tells you that an endorsement by Trump is a guarantee of uh, of winning an election, it's certainly not true. Um, of course, that man was handicapped somewhat by being accused of uh, groping eight Republican women at a Republican fundraising event, one of whom is a Nebraska state senator. So uh, that's my little introduction. Ricketts, again, claims to be pro-life. I, I believe he's Catholic. Um, he also, uh, when the Nebraska unicameral, the only one in the country, uh, was finally able to pass uh, legislation that ended the death penalty in Nebraska, a project that had been of some 30 years uh duration, uh, spearheaded by one of the most famous people ever in the Nebraska unicameral, uh, a senator from Omaha named Ernie Chambers. Uh, Ricketts and his family uh, basically bought and paid for a ballot initiative to make a constitutional amendment to to the Nebraska Constitution to reinstate the death penalty. And, uh, you know, money talks. And, uh, yeah, even, even though it took 30 years to get the legislature to finally overturn the death penalty in Nebraska, uh, the Ricketts family, and Pete especially, was able to purchase it. And it's in the Nebraska Constitution now. So we have reinstated the death penalty in Nebraska. And that, my friends and neighbors, is Pete Pro-Life Ricketts. May he please leave the state of Nebraska as soon as his term at, at governor is over. Please. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. God. Yeah, these people are never really pro-life. Um. And Rena, are the are like the the next crop of candidates? Are they any better, or is it is just more of the same? Uh, Pete Ricketts. I, I of course I try not to pay any attention to re, the Republicans because they're going to win anyway. But yeah. um, uh, the guy the guy that Ricketts endorsed uh, 
former Nebraska football player. He's been on the board of regents for the University of Nebraska. Uh, but he's towing a very, 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 very conservative line. I think the 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 guy who lost, who was, who came in second, who was endorsed by Trump, he was uh, MAGA, for lack of a better, simple explanation for it. He was uh, very noisy, right wing, uh, you know, far right wing Republican. I would say. Um, yeah, it, that part's all kind of depressing. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, the Democrat who's going to be running was a state senator and, uh, she would be much better. Of course, uh, you can watch the Nebraska unicameral when it's in session here on our, uh, state educational television. And I have seen her, um, in, in the unicameral sometimes. And I, I think she'd be just fine. You know, I'm, I'm not a, I am no longer a Democrat. Let me put it that way. But in Nebraska, (laughs) if you could even get a Democrat to run for anything, you're probably better off voting for them. Um, Yeah, it's, it's not, it's not likely that, that Democrats for any, any statewide or federal offices, if, if those, I don't think other than the congressional uh, races, one of which might go to a Democrat, it's very unlikely that, that any of the Democrats are, are going to win. And I, I would like to mention one other peculiar thing about Nebraska politics. Um, it's unicameral. In a lot of states, a lot of states have term limits on their uh, legis- on their state, state officials. Like I say, we've got term, term limits on the governorship, which is fine by me. Uh, but we do we do also now have state limits on the uh on the unicameral people and it's kind of a problem in Nebraska as opposed to other states because in a lot of other states legislators start out in the lower house and then if they get term limited out there they can run for the upper house and that's not an option in Nebraska so they only get two two uh two terms in Nebraska and then you know you have to seek office elsewhere because you're term limited out and the term limits we didn't used to have term limits in the legislature ernie chambers uh who's now in his 80s uh was in this was in the state legislature i think for about 40 years the term limits bill was specifically written and passed to kick him out of the legislature because he had been there so long and he understood the legislature so well and the rules and the procedures and everything so well that he basically controlled the legislature. So the term limits bill was specifically written to get him out of the legislature. So it's, and he wasn't grandfathered in. So he he got kicked out. He had to sit out for four years and then he came back. And it was during the time that he was back that he was able to get the uh, the death penalty uh, the death penalty legislation that eliminated it in Nebraska. Yeah, and that that was when Ricketts had his little fit and uh, spent a bunch of money and and got it reinstated. And I might mention just parenthetically that Ernie Chambers is black. All right. Well, Reno, listen. I think you've just officially become the the useful idiots Nebraska correspondent. That was a uh, that was a thorough. Oh dear! I, I, and I, I I despair for your state. It sounds it sounds rough there. So thank you for filling us in on what's thank happening. You. And uh, you know, uh, best of luck, and 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 we'll check back with you in the future because I I can't wait yeah. to see who comes after Ricketts. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Rena. And Sam, you are next. Hey, uh, I'll, I'll be super quick. Um, I, I was wondering if you guys are going to bring on um, Miko Pellet in the future because uh, his episode with Katie from the Katie Halper show was, was amazing. So I would think about like if you guys would bring him on to talk about this whole like how the 
that was very nauseating the way the ambassador was just trying to whitewash that whole thing. And with I can't believe Seltzer said, I know you don't want to be talking about this. It's like, I wonder if this was a Russian diplomat and, you know, it was a U.S. Uh, journalist who got killed if he was going to be so understanding. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Russian ambassador, I'm so sorry. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you'd much rather be talking about something else. I'm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, borscht would be much better to talk about. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so Miko Pellet, he is the son of mm-hmm. a Israeli general and very outspoken in criticizing the Israeli government. And the yeah, grandson good... of like one of the signing founders of Israel, I think like okay, his yeah. grandfather was like, yeah, one of the uh, people who signed, in, I don't know what the UN thing is that signs in the country, but. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's a good idea. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. So thanks for the recommendation. Mm-hmm. Well, take care and enjoy the rest of your Monday. You too. Okay, Gregory. Hello, Aaron, you there? I'm here, yeah. Hey, okay, so I have a problem uh, with my friends. I come up against their, they're saying that I take out of my worldview Ukrainian, like what the Ukrainian people want. Because I'm always saying, yeah, it's a coup. You know, yeah, of course, the Maidan, uh, the color revolution was co-opted. But how... Do I get him? Like, what? What, what do, you, do you ever encounter that where people are saying that you're taking away the will of the Ukrainian people, or like you're taking that out of the equation? And how would I address that? Well, in, in my experience, people making that argument are making it from the point of view of the Ukrainians who they agree with, but not the Ukrainians who they disagree with. So, if you look at actual recent history in Ukraine, you see a very divided country. And I have I wrote about this in one of my articles where when the Maidan coup happened in 2014, polls showed that the country was split on whether or not to support it. And in fact, some polls show that a majority of Ukrainians opposed it and opposed even the Maidan protests. And then, in fact, Yanukovych, who was overthrown with U.S. backing, that he was, despite all this corruption, the most popular politician in the country at that time, which makes sense because he was the one who the Ukrainian people elected. He was the elected president, despite all of his uh, corruption and, and other flaws. So well, yeah, when people talk about Ukrainian, yeah. so, so I will link in the show notes for, uh, my article, on, you know, which which has a section dealing with the question of polls. And polls have also con- consistently shown that a majority of Ukrainians are opposed to joining NATO. Now, that has changed in recent years, but that's only come after basically, you know, the context of a U.S.-backed coup and an awful war. And in, in situations of war, I mean, people's minds easily change. But there's a second question. Let's say that right now a, a vast majority of, of Ukrainians uh, want to join NATO and they also want the U.S. to flood their country with weapons. Let's say that, let's say that that is true. I don't think it is, but um, I certainly think that it's true that more Ukrainians support joining NATO than they did before. I, I do think support for joining NATO has increased. But still, that doesn't mean we have to do exactly what they say because we have agency too and the question for us is do we want to flood a country with weapons when there are other diplomatic solutions on the table and do we want to risk a nuclear holocaust because that's essentially what is being asked for here if you want to escalate u.s military involvement if you want to use flooding a conflict zone with weapons is always a good idea you know well i mean just look at syria and libya so we we have agency as well so we have agency as well uh, and personally, I want to see that agency pushing for diplomacy, not a proxy war. Of course. Dovetailing on that question, what about Finland wanting to join NATO now? Basically the same thing? Yeah, look, I think it's suicidal, and uh, I think it's crazy. And again, Finland has the right to request NATO membership, but is it wise for the rest of NATO to admit them? You don't have to admit someone just because they want to join. Yeah, exactly. And I think... You know, again, let's say the majority of people in Finland want to join. Is it worth the predictable consequences, which is basically Russia opening up a new front uh, or possibly opening up a new new front and radically, again, increasing the threat of nuclear holocaust? To me, it's not worth it, even if a majority of people in Finland want it, because we have the choice to make here as well. It's not just a matter of like, you know, if someone wants to join, they, they get in. It's a question of is that membership good or bad for humanity? I think it's bad for humanity, and I think so. That's the perspective I would, I would urge people to consider. 
Well, yes, but unlike Ukraine, Finland doesn't have any active conflicts on its territory right now. So theoretically, if the West and NATO really wanted to, they could kind of stick it to Putin and welcome with open arms Finland in, you know, nuclear war be damned. Is that what you think we'll see? Well, I mean, you know, I, I can't predict that. What I have heard Russia say is that they don't mind Finland joining NATO, but they would mind if Finland is used as has happened in Poland and Romania exactly. yeah. to place offensive weapons that could hit Russia. And okay. certainly Russia, if Russia got the sense that that was going to happen, then they would take preemptive strikes against Finland to prevent that. And who wants that? So why would you want to push for that outcome? It's just, <sighs> how does that help anybody? It's just, the know. fact is Russia has yeah. said very clearly that they're not going to tolerate an offensive military alliance on their border pointing weapons at them. That's the context that is, that is forgotten here. This isn't just about Ukraine. This is also about, for the last 20 years, the U.S. has been dismantling arms control treaties that prevented a nuclear holocaust, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the INF Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty. The first one, the ABM, that was dismantled by Bush and John Bolton. And then when John Bolton came back under Trump, while Democrats were fantasizing about a Trump-Russia conspiracy, Bolton picked up where he left off and dismantled the INF and the Open Skies Treaty, two really important treaties. And so Russia is basically now, you know, in, in going to war in Ukraine, this is also about that as well. They're trying to say that this has to stop because they are threatened existentially by having a hostile military alliance um, now enabled to point weapons at them by this by the dismantlement of these treaties. And what the dismantlement of the, AB, of the ABM Treaty did is it let the U.S. build up these missile sites in Poland and Romania, and they claimed that the missiles there are really just to defend Europe from Iran, yeah, they're which, is a, which is a joke. I mean, no one takes that seriously. Iranian missiles, I don't think, can even hit Europe right now. And even if they could, Iran would be committing suicide to ever attack Europe. Like, why would they do that? So the aim is obvious. It's actually to, to further encircle Russia. And this is now Russia's brutal response, is basically... Uh, taking it out on Ukraine. And the question is, do you want to further inflame this by adding another potential site for NATO weapons aimed at Russia? Or do you want to uh, try to come up with, with a diplomatic solution? To me, the answer is pretty obvious. Of course, it's, it's absolutely obvious. It's like no one understands what a nuclear winter means anymore. No. All right. Exactly. Thanks for your time, Aaron. Free Julian Assange. Love the show. Talk to you guys later. Thank you. Free Good Julian luck. Assange, indeed. All right. Tyler. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Kate. How are you guys Good. today? Good. How are you? I'm great. I just want to say I'm going to be intentionally brief because there's a lot of people in the queue. Uh, I want to say first off, I'm a huge fan of both of your work for a long time now. Kate, I found you last year on uh, when you were on Katie Helper's stream. Oh, and uh, I've been a big fan of yours for years. And I just want to say I know both of you guys get a lot of Internet hate uh, as a result of your excellent work. So I just want to say thank you. Keep doing it. I want to send some love in the context of all that hate because we need people like you. And I'm very grateful that you put it up with it all and keep doing what you do. I say, you um, know, I just want to say, Tyler, you know, you don't mind up like, you know what? Do you know what my motto is when I get hate? I say hate is great. That's what I say. Put it in my veins. <laughs> put it in my veins. I feed off of it. Hate is great. Yeah, no, that is really true. I was talking to Aaron last night about some haters and I can't really tell you how much he did not care. And I was like, I need to take that attitude and, and put it deep in my soul because that is inner peace. <laughs> I've, I've, I've always thought you're, you're only going to get mainstream haters when you're doing something meaningful and good for the world. Amen. So if you don't, Amen. if you don't got any, then you don't have anything meaningful going on. Um, <laughs> I, I, I saw a post from uh, Caitlin Johnstone the other day, and it said, um, no one thinks of themselves as a warmonger until the war propaganda starts, right? Everyone, everyone thinks of themselves as an anti-war activist until, of course, they're being propagandized into supporting the latest new things. I just wanted to get y'all's reflections on that, and I'm going to jump off after, after uh, right, right here because I know there's a lot of people in the queue. So thank you. Take care. Yeah, well, you know, no, no one, I think, conscious, except for a few crazy sadists, consciously thinks that they're warmongering. But the beauty of our propaganda system, it works so well, is that 
just a series of incentives are built up to, to make it so that if you don't warmonger, you're going to be isolated and you're going to be marginalized. And so the only way to exist and to thrive is to warmonger and to go along with the propaganda that justifies war. It, that's how it works every single time. Manufacturing consent laid out all the different mechanisms through which this works. And it works beautifully because no one's telling you, hey, like go warmonger for, you know, the proxy war in Ukraine or for the next war in China or wherever else. But it's just you just internalize the 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 this this like you you internalize what's made very clear is that if you don't do this then you're you're not going to get heard and you'll be called names so that creates this subconscious incentive structure to 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 drink the Kool Aid and it's very difficult to to uh, break free of that yeah I mean I think like one thing that has been sort of I don't know if this this certainly isn't helpful on a public level but you know with like a one to one like conversation with like someone in your life. So I think that most people who are supporting war, like they buy into the humanitarian justifications for it, even if they can see that it it wasn't actually true in previous wars. And I think it is, you know, it can be good to be like, you know, okay, remember when we went into Afghanistan, what were the reasons for that? You know, oh, to like liberate women you know, okay, what were the reasons that we went into Iraq? Okay, to save people from Saddam Hussein and just kind of, you know, people are able to, I think for the most part, see through like, you know, that past wars were not actually about the humanitarian reasons. It's pretty widely accepted uh, at this point that that's, that's not what we were doing with any of the war on terror. But it's always like, you know, the current war is always like, oh, is, is always about helping people. And, you know, I mean, if look, if wars were really about helping and saving people, you know, maybe I would support them from time to time. But it's never that it's never actually that the uh, <laughs> the State Department and the Pentagon, they're not um, like a neutral, benevolent, altruistic buddies that care about people in need. All right, Tyler, thank you for the call, and we'll go on to Cade. Um, I guess I don't want to keep belaboring uh, the Finland um, stuff, but I'm still kind of struggling to understand how it could interact with, um, you know, just just the sort of the the consequences, what well, the consequences of their asking to join NATO could be. I've seen some people suggest that there could be sort of a preemptive strike by Russia because once Finland's in NATO, you can't strike um, because, you know, it could provoke a um, a nuclear war because we'd have a obligation to defend Finland if they join NATO. Um, and then I've also seen people sort of suggest that uh, Finland might join NATO um, and Russia might be all right with that as long as we didn't start putting weapons there. Um, but I guess I'm just concerned there could be miscalculations and obviously I'm not, not trying to be selfish about this all, but I really don't want there to be a nuclear war uh, because it would affect a lot of us. Um, no, that's really uh, selfish. That's really yeah. selfish for you to not want a nuclear war. That, um, that is just an aspect of male narcissism that needs to be addressed is, is this, this trend of people who don't want nuclear war. It's, um, no, no, I, I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Um, the, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that you have uh, two scenarios here and, and you've laid them out. So, you know, if sanity is, does not prevail, I mean, it looks like Finland will join NATO. I don't think that's going to be thwarted. Everyone involved seems pretty set on that. So, and Russia has threatened to take some measures in response. And we've learned from Ukraine that Russia doesn't bluff. So yes, if Russia, I think, sees a possibility of NATO putting offensive weapons inside Finland, then Russia will take strikes in advance. Hopefully, what I hope for is that there's some sort of deal behind the scenes that will basically, it will be made clear to Russia that Finland will not host offensive weapons, and uh, hopefully everyone involved can feel assurances about that so that Russia doesn't feel compelled to strike Finland because the alternative is Russia opening up a new front, attacking Finland. And of course, as you say, the unthinkable is that uh, Finland joins NATO and then somehow Russia attacks Finland. And then, and then, as you say, that's, that's nuclear war. So hopefully if Finland doesn't gene, does indeed join NATO, there'll be sane people will prevail and provide some sort of guarantee, binding guarantee 
that Finland will not host weapons. No matter what, it's a recipe for conflict, but at least that can be mitigated somewhat to avoid the worst case scenario. So related to that, I guess, do you know if we do we still have lines of communication with Russia to to do that? And then also in the app, in like the joining the process of joining NATO, how does like the vote on like I I know, you know, every country has a is supposed to have a veto right um would how how does that happen do do they all vote at once um what what's what are sort of the logistics of of a country joining nato well you know it happened before when in 2008 george w bush wanted to overrule his advisors including fiona hill uh and uh and he did uh because they were saying don't let ukraine join nato because uh, it will be a disaster. And Bush really, really wanted to. That was a big priority for him and Dick Cheney. So, But the thing is, France and Germany really also didn't want that either. So they reached a compromise where there was a pledge put out that Ukraine that the door would be uh, open to Ukraine to join NATO, and that one day it will join, but they weren't going to admit it now. So, the, And that was a result of a behind-the-scenes process, because you do need everybody on board. And uh, so we'll probably see something similar now. I think Turkey has voiced some concerns about Finland joining NATO. And yeah, unless Turkey or whoever else can be sufficiently bribed, um, then it will be difficult for Finland to join. But never underestimate the ability of the U.S. to bully people and bribe them. The U.S. does that really, really well. Uh, There's the case of Jose Bustani, who's the first head of the OPCW. And back when Bush was trying to invade Iraq, Bustani got in the way when he tried to admit Iraq to the Chemical Weapons Convention, and that would have submitted Iraq to inspections. And the problem from the point of view of the Bush administration is that would have shown that Iraq doesn't have any chemical weapons or WMDs. So that was a problem. So Bustani had to go. So John Bolton flew over there and personally threatened Bustani and said, we know where your kids live. And so, you know, don't uh, rule out the, the ability of the U.S. to do something similar, whether it's through bribery or outright threats like that to get what it wants. But uh, yes, it, it does require a consensus, and it's not clear if there is one right now. And in terms of um, communication between the two sides, U.S. and Russia, a few days ago, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, called his Russian counterpart for the first time and apparently asked him for a ceasefire, which is interesting because the narrative we're getting is that Ukraine is... Uh, at least the narrative we're getting in the U.S. is that Ukraine is winning the war. So if that's the case, then why is Lloyd Austin begging for a ceasefire? I don't know the answer, but I thought that was interesting. So, yes, that is the only communication at that level that that's happened. But it came after a long time. There was a long time when Russian generals weren't answering the calls of the U.S. They just wouldn't talk to them. Okay, yeah, that's, I guess, both reassuring that they had some communication and terrifying um, that, you know, there was a prolonged period where they didn't. Um, um, thanks for that. Thank you. Okay. Brent. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Hi, Aaron. Um, this is Brent. Um, I first heard about you, uh, during the, uh, the Jimmy Dore drama. I don't know if you remember that. Um, it was, I remember you defending Jimmy and I really, that's when I first heard about you. Um, and I thought what the Young Turks and what Kyle did was total bullshit. And um, yeah, so that's how I first heard about you. So uh, my question is, um, you talk about how Ukraine is provoking Russia and by encroaching with uh, by joining by wanting to join NATO and the um, the coup and um, what happened to Donbass. But um, isn't it Russia the one that started the war? Um, how does all those things, all those reasons that I mentioned, how does how does that justify a Russia invasion? It doesn't justify a Russian invasion. I've never justified the Russian invasion. But what I'm not going to do is pretend that the war started when Russia invaded. My point is that the war actually started eight years ago when the U.S. backed a coup and then backed the coup government in launching an assault on Ukraine's Russian-speaking population. The first move of the coup government, which was staffed by a number of fascists, it, 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 I mean, it's not even me saying that. That's Foreign Policy magazine pointed that out at the time, that a major contingent in the coup government were fascists because that was the muscle behind 
the Maidan coup, the first move was to ban the Russian language. And that came with a number of assaults on people who resisted the coup, including in a town called Odessa, where in May 2014, dozens of people were burned alive as they were protesting the Maidan coup. And that was a part of a climate of just an assault on the minority inside Ukraine, which is sizable of people who speak Russian, who identify with Russia and don't want to live under a government that was dominated by fascists. That's when the war started. And that's my point. Russia's invasion was a brutal and catastrophic response. I wish Russia had found some other way to address its grievances. I, I'm just saying is I think that its grievances were legitimate. I, I don't accept that Russia had no other option but to invade. Uh, there has to have been some other peaceful way. That, that, like You have to exhaust all peaceful options before you take a military response. But I'm just not going to pretend that that's when the war started. Right, right, right. Like, I I agree with you. Like, Ukraine is not innocent in this, nor is the United States. I think the United States is funding this war, like funding a war to fund, to funnel taxpayer money from the United States to various uh, weapons industries. That's what, that's what I believe. I don't know how true that is, but no, but there's no innocent party in this. But I feel that if Russia didn't invade then none of this would have happened there. Like I, I listened to Jimmy, like I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Dore and he, not once does he mention, he says that, um, Ukraine there by, by supporting Ukraine, um, you're pro war, but Russia is also pro war, but it seems like he's refusing to acknowledge that because he wants to be anti-establishment, but it's, it's kind of like Russia is also imperialist as well. Okay. Well, That's look, the- yeah, look, I can't speak for Jimmy, but I'll, I'll but speaking for myself, I think right. Russia launched this war uh, to put an end to a war that it, it didn't start. Russia, I don't think, started this war. The war started with a coup and then an assault on the people in the Donbass who didn't want to live under the coup government. And by the way, it's them, it's, it's victims in the Donbass who have been erased because for them, the war started eight years ago and they've been living through it. 14,000 people have died on both sides, but the majority have died on the pro-rebel side and they've been completely ignored. And so up until the invasion, there was a peace settlement on the table called the Minsk Accords. It was reached in 2015. So it's been on the books for a long time. And the basic premise was that the Donbass, like the rebel held area, that the rebel held areas demilitarize in exchange, the Donbass where the, you know, Russian speakers live, they get some autonomy within Ukraine's borders, though. Everyone now knows. There's no one who will dispute this. It was Ukraine that refused to implement its end of the deal. And the reason they didn't implement it is because the U.S. essentially told them not to. John McCain and Lindsey Graham went over to Ukraine in late 2016 and said that 2017 will be the year of offense and Russia has to pay a heavier price. What they mean by that is that the civilians in the Donbass have to pay a heavier price because we're using your country for a proxy war to, to bleed Russia. And Russia can't win this. Uh, and our coup has to succeed. So that is what I think Russia is responding to. And basically, Minsk was on the table. Ukraine refused to implement it. Um, they refused to even speak to the leaders of the separatists in February or in January, shortly before Russia invaded. So I think like what I'm saying, and p- coupled with the fact that the Biden administration, upon taking office, uh, continue the steps to integrate Ukraine into NATO by signing all these uh, military agreements, training Ukrainian soldiers. Trump, as I mentioned before, killed all these arms control treaties that were preventing a nuclear holocaust. And doing that allowed the U.S. to further encircle Russia. So that that's the background here. And that is, to me, what Russia is responding to. I wish they had found another way to respond to it. But I'm just, again, I'm not going to pretend that this is all just some imperialist war because they want to take over Ukraine. If they want to take over Ukraine, they could have done it eight years ago, or they could have done it when the people in the Donbass voted to join Russia. Russia actually tried to have Minsk implemented, but it was Ukraine with U.S. backing that, that ignored that. So that's the background that I think gets ignored in how we speak about the war in Ukraine. All right. Okay, that was my rant. Sorry if, that was up. Sorry if I went over too long. Okay, Mo, you are up. Uh, Mo, we can't hear you. Can you speak close to your phone or turn off Bluetooth? No. No. Yeah, Mo, sorry, you're too low. So if you, why don't you leave the queue and come back in and we'll see if it's any better. So I'll go to Adrian next. 
Okay. No, no, Adrian. So Bill, you are up. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> okay. So let me uh, send you some stuff uh, your way. Uh, rapid fire. <laughs> um, one of the things about the Russian, the Russian language thing that um, I don't hear people talk about is that no president of Ukraine actually signed that bill and it was found uh, unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of Ukraine. Uh, I talked to my friend who's from from that region and, you know, he moved to the United States several years ago and he he would he talked about it a lot. But then he when I mentioned that the other day, he's like, well, that wasn't the big deal. It was it was the oppression, the you know grabbing people and killing them and stuff like that is what he was concerned with. And I think that was a much more major issue. But um, one of the things that's happening in Donbass right now is that um, the separatists are uh, conscripting people against their will, giving them three days training, giving them old weapons and sending them off to fight. Um, it's definitely not a good situation for the people in Donbass. That's for sure. Um one I've thing, never, I've never said it was a good situation for the people. Oh in the no, I'm not State. saying you. I'm not saying they you did. Through, I just, I lived through hell. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not okay. saying you did, Aaron. I just, I'm just pointing out that, you know, if Putin is really concerned about the Donbass, you know, I don't think this is the way to do it. And I think, uh, you know, in the bad part about it is that I think it's not his major concern. It's his, it's his, it's his pretext. He wants to establish, to restore the sphere of influence that Russia has had in the past, that the good old days, the glory days. I think if you read his, he basically said it in his, um, in what he published, where he said, you know, uh, really these, these places should have, there should have been a softer landing. And you know what? I, I think it would have been great if there was a softer landing for the Soviet Union, but it's too late now. Um, and, you know, he wants to, reestablish a sphere of influence over these countries. Now, I don't think I don't think his motives are are what you're suggesting that he's just trying to protect Russia. I think he's I think he's trying to reestablish something that's that has been lost. Now, the last thing I want to say is um the biggest danger that we ever had of nuclear war was during the Cold War. And it was because we were equal. Uh, to a certain extent, we were both flexing our muscles. Uh, Soviet Union was, and so was the United States. And uh, <clears throat> I'm just making this, this is sort of a devil's argument, but can't you see the logic behind what the neocons are trying to do? They're trying to keep that from re being reestablished, that situation where, and you were even saying that, Aaron, you know, if we have dual hegemons, then we're going to have conflict. I would not. I don't want the United States to rule the world. I don't want it to be a hegemon. I would like to see a multilateral, peaceful existence with the nations of the of the world, and not have any hegemon. But that is their logic. They, you know, they want the United States to rule so that we don't have a cold war. We would be a lot more in much more danger if we have a cold war again. We're in a cold war right now. We're in a cold yeah. war right now, and it's the problem with the lo the logic you lay out is that Russia has nuclear weapons. They actually have more nuclear weapons than the U.S. does. So yes, the U.S. is more powerful, but the U.S. and Russia together have the capacity to destroy the world many, many times over. And so, if you're provoking a country with nuclear weapons in a bid for global hegemony, it's a recipe for disaster. So the answer is negotiations. I don't know what's in Putin's heart and I don't really care. I mean, I, it's pretty clear he's a Russian nationalist and a chauvinist. I don't like the guy very much. I wouldn't vote for him if I had the opportunity if I was in Russia. But the fact is, he whatever he said and written, there's also the, the, the uh, reality of what Russia has proposed. Russia has proposed and Russia has supported or said it supports diplomatic, diplomatically. And I think if Russian proposals before the invasion had been taken so ser seriously, and not been dismissed by neocons who only care about dominating the world and see everyone else, including Russia, as just sub subordinates, I think this war could have been avoided. What are those proposals? Respecting the Minsk Accords, so recognizing autonomy mm -hmm. for the rebel-held areas of the Donbass, which would have kept Ukraine's borders intact. Russia was not asking for recognition of these countries as, as independent or, or a part of Russia. It didn't, it didn't mm -hmm. want these territories as a part of Russia, which... I think 
says a lot about these claims that Russia is imperialist and wants to restore the Soviet Union. Russia didn't want the Donbass. It could have taken them if it wanted, if it wanted, but it didn't. Um, right. Russia supported the Minsk Accord, so that's a part of it. And also, Russia put out two draft tre- treaties that were very extensive, that essentially just talked about restoring the arms control treaties that Trump tore up, the, including the INF treaty. That to me is very sensible. That to me is not imperialist. That's just preventing uh, a world holocaust. So this idea well, that think- B- Putin is bent on restoring the Soviet Union, even if that's what he wants personally, the fact is Russia proposed solutions that I think were sensible and should have at least been pursued and not dismissed. And that's exactly what the Biden well, administration but once, did. Once they staged, once they put 150,000 or whatever it was, troops along the border, then it became a threat. Yes. All the more reason to pursue diplomacy. Russia's proposals came in December. Then that was after the big buildup. So why not pursue diplomacy then? Why not? Why not try it? Yeah, I think um, you and I would probably agree with that. But I think there's a lot of people who are foreign policy experts, quote unquote, that believe that it would be a sign of weakness. Of course they do. Of course they do, because their job is to promote war. And that's why people who profit from from war pay their salaries. So that's what makes them, quote unquote, experts is basically expertise Mm -hmm. in promoting global destruction. So. I don't, you know, take what they say seriously. Some, uh, I take it as something to, as a sign of what we should be fighting against and what we should be avoiding. Because I don't want to destroy the world and I don't want to have wars. I think we should have, I think we should try to live together. And when there are solutions yeah. on the table, who, I mean, weakness, I mean, like, 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 think about that. Yes, there are people who think that we can't look weak. But like, what does weak mean? It means not looking like the global hegemon. That's how a mafia boss thinks. I don't think the world should run like a mafia racket. Well, I think we kind of failed to establish establish a kind of world order where we have more equal representation of people's interests. I mean, it just seems like we we're in the situation now where we don't have what what's necessary to have that kind of world, Aaron. And that's what I was trying to say about, you know, you kept the other day we were arguing and you were saying, well, you just accept that. That's just the way it is. Everybody does it. I'm I'm not saying that I like it. I'm just saying it's facts. It's the way the world works. So we can't. How do we fix that? I don't I don't think we can fix it without establishing something new, a new world order where you have a different kind of of dynamic right now. That's the dynamic that we have. Well. I am all for that new world order, <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to, you know, do my part in fighting for. You know, so okay. Well, uh, keep, I appreciate that. Keep up the good work. It's nice talking to you. Thanks, Bill. Thank you for calling. Okay, Jan or Jan? Yes, uh, Jan. Thank you. Hey, uh, yeah, Aaron. I think it's kind of the pot calling the kettle black for the U.S. to call. Um, <laughs> to call uh, Russian imperialist, isn't it? Like, look at the military budgets, just stack those up, I guess, is one measure. Um, or how many regime changes um, each one has implemented in the last you know, couple dozen years. Um, hey, appreciate your work. I have a question, uh, a couple of them. Um, one real quick. Has there been any update on the chemical labs? That, do we know what was happening there? Um, have we learned anything? That was the biological lab's that uh, Victoria Newland admitted to. No, I haven't seen an update. Russia published some documents that it said proved something nefarious, but I took a quick look and I didn't see that. I I think uh, that was kind of underwhelming, to be honest with you. But um, I haven't looked into it too deeply. Yeah, it, it's just it, it just lurks. It seems a bit suspicious. Um, yeah, I mean, it was weird. It, it, it was weird when Victoria Newland she, she could have just denied right. that the U.S. has biological weapons research going on in Ukraine. She was given that opportunity when she was asked about it and she didn't. And she instead just gave this kind of cryptic warning that Russia, she's concerned about Russia seizing biological labs. And so the question is like, you know, yeah, why, <laughs> why not, why not just say we don't have them and be, you know, if they're benign, why are you worried about Russia seizing them? So that was weird, but I haven't heard anything more since and i i yeah whatever i mean like russia has said said a lot of things and i whatever you know just like the u.s you can't take them on faith right well i i trust uh you or, or 
Glenn Greenwald or Katie, you know, somebody will bring it up once we have anything that, that comes out of that. Um, the final question is more like, what can we do to fix this situation? From what I know about U.S. politics is you have um, the, the Congress with uh, no term limits. Just the president has that, I believe. Uh, so it, it seems like, wouldn't it be cutting off? What effect would it have to, uh, you know, uh, make super PAC, I think is called, um, you know, legal bribery, I think, right? How do you make that? How do you how do you cut that off? Would term limits really do anything to kind of strangle the the military industrial complex from, you know, at its root? I mean, what what do we what can actually change something? Look, it's a great question, especially when you have a country where states with like relatively way less people have the same power as states with a lot of people like, you know, say, Idaho and California have the same number of senators. And that's just, I think, a crazy system. But, um, yeah, look, I mean, uh, I definitely think term limits would be a great thing. The fact that, like, all of our leaders are elderly, you know, Dianne Feinstein is having Mm -hmm. problems remembering people's names. Joe Biden, he's obviously Mm -hmm. slowed down a lot. Uh, Steny Hoyer, Steny Hoyer, the... uh, the um, leader of, or, or, or the uh, whatever, like a top Democrat in the House, he said the other day that we're at war. <laughs> he said that <laughs> on the House floor. It's just like you know. So you have, and and then like the only, I think like like the youngest Democrat in the leadership position is Chuck Schumer, who's in his early seventies. So yeah, I definitely think term limits would be a great thing, but that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's sad. Yeah, just yeah, it, it's just shocking how quickly everything uh, came with the propaganda. You know, three months back, it's you know Putin's evil. Uh, Zelensky's a great guy, and you know we need to save democracy. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems like there's more comfort being in a war than not. Um, it, I'm getting the feeling. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, thank you for your work. I appreciate that. You too, Katie. I know you're. Um, snuggle up with your cat possibly um <laughs> take you to take it easy there but yeah i love your podcast um both of you thank you so much for thank you work. so much um, yeah i appreciate you guys thanks john okay armchair daily hey aaron uh, how are you doing i'm great i'm great how are you yeah i'm good as well thank you uh i'm gonna be a pain in your eyes like once again uh, i hope you don't mind um like when you say um, that Ukrainian, um, like the, well, whatever people want to call it, uh, Euromaidan or Maidan or revolution, that it was a coup, um, isn't it a little bit disingenuous to say that? And I don't mean that with any uh, disrespect, but isn't it a little bit disingenuous to say that 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 coup government launched a, an offensive? on the Donbass when it was actually the first president who was elected and the parliament that was elected by the people who were, you know, were, 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 were um, carrying out that operation. Um, and also like when you say that they launched a war on their own people, I mean, again, like I feel like something gets lost in translation because it's not that they were trying to like literally genocide you know russian speakers there who are civilians i mean they were fighting against people who were basically trying to secede unilaterally from ukraine from their country it's like basically the same way you know you could say that um you know russia didn't have a right to you know in the 90s and early 2000s to try and keep chechnya as part of its country now, you know, obviously there's a lot of problems there with the way they, uh, you know, handled the Chechnya wars with a lot of atrocities. The same way I agree with you, you know, the the fact that there are more civilian deaths in the rebel uh, population, in the rebel side uh, controlled government, sorry, in the rebel controlled territory in Ukraine, that's I think that's a problem and that should be, um, you know, investigated. But the fact that the, 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 the operation to stop that secession, unilateral secession from going ahead. Is that not a right that any government has? Well, it depends. First of all, I think it's fair to ask, was that government um, a legitimate government? And I, I mean, you dispute that they were 
installed by a coup, but the elected president was Yanukovych. Whatever you think of him, I know he was very corrupt, but he was the elected president. And as I mentioned before, there were even polls at the time, and they were discussed in the Washington Post, and I'll, I'll link to the article in which I discussed this, calling him the most popular pre- uh, uh, politician in the country at the time he was overthrown. So if a coup government, I mean, if you accept the premise that it's a coup government, it sounds like you don't, but I do. If they are, you know, uh, installed with U.S. If they're installed with U.S. backing, and we know they were installed by U.S. backing because there's that recording of Victoria Nuland plotting who the new Ukrainian government will be. And the people who she selects are those who took over the Ukrainian government after the coup. So if you accept that premise, then then what right do they have to... um, carry out things like their first act, which was to ban the Russian language. And people who didn't elect them and want the president they elected, they have the right to at least fight for autonomy and for their rights. And especially when things like, and I talked about earlier, the Odessa massacre happened where you had dozens of people who opposed the Maidan coup were burned alive. And the government was totally complicit in that. Uh, A guy named Andrei Perubi, who is a uh, Ukrainian fascist who was a uh, appointed uh, he, he's the co-founder of uh, of essentially a Nazi party Svoboda um he was the head of security for the Maidan protests and after the Maidan coup he was he was made a member of the cabinet of the post-coup government and in Odessa he was there with the far-right crowd that burned those people alive. And that's why no one's been prosecuted inside Ukraine since for that atrocity is because it was government sanctioned. So in that context, do people have the right to try to defend themselves? I think they absolutely do. Well, but again, I think, I think it's, uh, it's important to like uh, make a distinction. It's one on, it's one thing when you have something like Odessa massacre happening and the government not investigating it. And, And again, I agree with you there. It should be investigated. It should be brought up, you know, brought up internationally, et cetera, et cetera. But that I just don't see how that gives, you know, you know, whatever, how, however many, um, you know, uh, civilian deaths were as part of that massacre, you know, 100, 200, even let's say it was 5,000. I just don't see how that gives a territory of, you know, that comprises 20% of the entire country or like 10 to 20% just unilaterally try to secede. Um, If you, if you see it, if you, if you, if, if a coup government takes over your country, ban your language, wait, 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 ban your language, ban your language, incorporates into its armed forces, a neo-Nazi battalion, and puts them on the front lines, by the way, of of the fight against the people in the Donbass. The the Azov Battalion were really were the shock troops for the war in the Donbass. They're the ones doing the heavy fighting because they're good fighters, and they're and they're ideologically motivated because they want to wipe out Ukraine's Russian component. So, in that context, I think it's legitimate for people to rise up to defend themselves. I do, um, and you know, it wasn't even it, like. I think even the notion that they all wanted to to secede, I, I think, I mean, sure, yes, that was a demand, but also I think they just wanted their rights. They, they wanted autonomy. And that, by the way, was the bargain of the Minsk Accords. The Minsk Accords, which the separatists agreed to, was not secession from Ukraine. It was autonomy inside Ukraine. And that just means granting them some rights. And that's, to me, in a country that is so divided, when you have people who are with completely different ideologies and backgrounds and that despise each other, granting some federalization, some autonomy, that, that makes sense. It wasn't the separatists who abandoned Minsk. It was the Ukrainian government. Fair enough. Thank you for, for, for taking my call. Thank you. And we are going to wrap in five minutes. So I'm sorry to everyone in advance whose calls we're not going to be able to get to. Adrian, you're up. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, just two quick questions and I'll, I'll uh, hang up and let you answer. Um, the one question has probably an, ob- an obvious answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Why went this sort of longstanding hostility towards Russia on our part? Uh, and then sort of uh, switching gears, the other question is, what do you both think of the prospects of 
I don't know, a sort of intellectual and, and practical kind of collaboration or at least dialogue among sort of non-establishment folks on both the right and the left. Thank you very much. And again, thank you for the great work that you all do. Bye-bye. Why the animus toward Russia? It, that's just a Cold War thing. It's been a reality in this country for a long time. People inside the national security state obviously carry it. And uh, people still think that they're living in a different era. And they still think that Russia is the Soviet Union, even though the Soviet Union has uh, collapsed. And that's just the mentality that we're stuck with. Um, and it was, I mean, it was, it's for people who profit off of war, it's, benefic- it's, it's, it's beneficial to have an enemy. You need an enemy to justify all the horrible things you do around the world and justify all the money that is, that is made off of war. So having Russia there is very convenient for people who profit off of war because that's how they justify what they do. So that's how I'd answer your first question. And the second question on a dialogue with the right, I mean, I'll talk to anybody. Um, I think this idea of like a new right, a new populist right is kind of, it's, um, it's overblown because I think, for example, there are some people on the right who are against the proxy war in Ukraine, but they really want to, but they really want a war against China. Right. I think that's a strain that, is uh is there but yeah i mean look uh it's a sad reality that right now there are people on the right who are being more a lot more principled in opposing the proxy war in ukraine and how can i turn away from that just because they're on the right and have all these other nutty views on on a bunch of other topics because i think preventing a nuclear war is a really important uh priority so i'm willing to talk to anybody but i also don't want to overstate the um the possibilities of cooperation, because I think there, there will always be issues that fundamentally I will never agree with, with the right wing on. I have, um, I I do have some thoughts on this issue specifically, um, which is, uh, you know, the, the new, new right. I'm going to, I'm going to put that in a fake air quotes because it, it is a lot like the old right in the sense that they believe the same, uh, fascistic things. You know, there's this idea that, you know, there's like, left-wing populism and right-wing populism um, has gotten a lot of traction in the past few years. And um, I think that's really unfortunate. Uh, Right-wing populism is, you know, I mean, it's like, first of all, I think it's fake. You don't really see them supporting, um, like you'll see them nod to like labor in their rhetoric, but do you see these people aggressively backing unions? Absolutely never. There's this idea that, um, you know, basically that there's a, you know, like the woke PMC libs or whatever, and the, the new right can form a coalition that is like billionaires, like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. Um, you know, it can be those, those kind of billionaires and the working class versus like, you know, woke Democrats who, and to me, it's pretty ridiculous. Like, obviously, Nancy Pelosi kneeling in a Kensei cloth or her, you know, completely toothless opposition to abortion. There's plenty of things to get mad about um, with, like, you know, mainstream Democrats. But the idea that billionaires are going to have working class people's interests at heart ever is it's completely, excuse me, it's completely fake. And, you know, Teal is, uh, I think, you know, at the, at the forefront of backing some people like JD Vance, um, who, you know, are kind of using this more populist rhetoric, but that's all it is. It's rhetoric. And, you know, in terms of, I'm so sorry, my, like I have a frog in my throat, but in terms of like, you know, talking to people, yeah, like I, you know, I definitely think like if, you know, you can, you know, if you know somebody that's like right wing and, you know, you hear a grain of like, you know, something that you can relate to, like, for example, they think that, you know, the way that healthcare is in this country is really messed up and that it's too expensive. Yeah. Like start there and, you know, see if you can steer them to like, okay, our actual solutions here are through organized labor. Like what's wrong with the democratic party is, you know, 
is not going to be solved by uh, a, a bunch of other billionaires who are more anti-immigration. It's going to be solved through um, through organized labor and um, other working class politics. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying cut people out of your life, but I'm saying be, in my opinion, be extremely like level 10 skeptical of anyone promoting the idea that the GOP, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, any of these people have working class interests at heart because of course they don't. All right. That's my rant. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, that was a great rant to close on because we, we are going to wrap here. Kate, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. I'm on Instagram at Kate.Willett and I have a podcast called Reply Guys. All right. Listen, Kate, you did a great job filling in for Katie today. So thank you so much for helping us out. It was, uh, it, it was great to have you. And Thank uh, you so much, Aaron. Great talking with you. And thanks to all of you for letting me uh, come hang out with you today. Katie will be back next week. Yes, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Usefulidiots.substack.com is where you can sign up to get bonus content. And have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.